There you go. There, it, that's about 300 years in four minutes. So uh, we're going to be talking about that this morning. If you are in Kidmo, you can head on out. No Kidmo. Oh, Kidmo's in here today. Okay. All right. Y'all stay in here today. All right. Um, okay. So here's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to be talking about not just the Reformation, but the need for Reformation throughout our history. Now, depending on what tradition you come from, your feeling of the Reformation period is either good or bad. There probably nobody says it's good. However, there are, maybe, maybe it would be better be coined, there are those who are defensive and those who are aggressive. Um, there are the only people that are in between, for the most part, tend to be those that aren't aware of what the Reformation was. What we're not going to try to do is make this a Protestant denomination defense. We are not going to try to defend any demographic or any denomination or any group of churches that is better than another. We are all the same under Christ. Amen. One of the things that I think we've struggled with over the last 500 years is a split within the church where we go to our respective camps and we believe we are the best of the church. And then we begin to determine why the other groups are worse than us. We may not agree with some of the beliefs. We may not agree with the way they do worship. We may not agree with how they handle authority. There may, could be any number of things. Often today, even within Protestant denominations, is a fracturing or a schism within those denominations based on simple theological beliefs. So our goal today, our goal for the next few weeks together, is not to say these people are right, these people are wrong, and we clearly are with the right. That is not our goal. But we have to be aware of what's going on in the world around us, and we have to be aware of what our history is in order that we don't repeat them, which is something that we today are in dire danger of because we do not remember what has happened before. Now, when I was in school, I did not particularly like history. Did anyone, who are the history buffs in the room? All right, so the history buffs, you're going to hold me accountable and you're going to love it. But that's like five people. So everybody else, wake up, go get some extra coffee and pay attention. And everything that I do and say, I hope that you will go and check it against sources to make sure that I'm not giving you something. I don't believe I am, but I'm not giving you something that is tainted for my own use, but instead I'm telling you what is true. And as we come into this, I want to ask you, history is not always fun for history's sake. However, there's a crucial question that we have to ask ourselves as we engage the world and understand our place is it and that is simply this why are things the way they are do you ever look around and ask yourself why are we in this situation if we look at anything that's going on in our current cultural context a good question is why are we going through this now the question of why is generally not a question we ask because the question of why requires time it requires effort it requires us stopping and reflecting it requires us to go out and research and find sources that can help us to understand history it requires us to pushing out 
what we tend to fill our heads with are the things that are entertaining and pleasurable, and instead we have to put into our minds the things that are true and accurate, what is happening in the world, so we can be a people who are responding to those things. We have to ask our question, why? We have to ask our question, you know, why are things the way they are in the church? We can't simply come to church, do our thing, go home, and go, oh, that was great. Sermon was entertaining. The music was awesome. I just, it was great. Let's go. Now we got other things to do. We got to ask ourselves, why are things the way they are in the church? Or how did our government get into the place that's in? We could do a whole series on that, couldn't we? That would be a lot of fun. And we'll let you come up and you can give your opinion on why our government is the way it is. But honestly, seriously, why is our government where it's at? It may be a more pressing question this morning that may be on the, the hearts and minds of many of you in the room today is why did Tennessee lose to Kentucky yesterday? The question of why is a hard question, and that's one I can't answer. I don't know if Brian's here today. I'm sure he'll be glad to talk to you about why Kentucky beat Tennessee today. But for the rest of us, there's a driving question is how did that happen? But seriously, when we fail to ask why, we simply accept what is and propagate someone else's agenda. Now, if you thought you would come in today and we would have a laid-back, fun discussion of the Reformation, I'm here to tell you we're not. (laughs) I need you to engage your hearts and I need you to engage your minds. I don't want you to check out and I don't want you to be intimidated. But we have to ask the why because for so long, for many people, we've only accepted that this is the way it is. And there is a propaganda out there that wants us to do that. Whether you're talking about your own relationships with others, your own job and what you fulfill and your role at your job, what our churches look like and how they act and respond, whatever you do within the world or how we respond to history itself, we have to answer this question why. And that is what we're going to try to address over these next few weeks. Because simply going along with what already is disengages you from an opportunity to see God at work. The church, in addition, has to always ask why. It's how we stay true to the path that Jesus wants us to follow. And what we're going to see is that many of these reformers, they knew that they had to stay true to the why of what we do. And I'll explain more about that. This has been a problem, not just recently. This was not just a problem 500 years ago. Yesterday is the day we celebrate 500 years that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. His goal was to start a conversation with church leaders about what he considered were abuses of church leadership and where they had missed what Scripture truly said and how we were to follow Christ, the role Christ was to have and the role the church was to have. He, he wanted to engage in a conversation, but instead the church did what they did at that time. They excommunicated him, tried to silence him, so they could continue in the course of action that they had determined that they wanted to follow. I'm going to give you several names of reformers today, some that we've seen already in this video and some that we have not. In Acts 20, Luke exhorts us through the, uh, the original apostles that we have to be asking ourselves the why of what we do and not just going along with what somebody else says. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now this happened not just at the beginning of the church in the first century. This happened during Jesus' ministry. Even as Jesus would explain the kingdom of God, there were many that would corrupt it. And so he said, you have to be careful. We have an exhortation throughout the New Testament that says you have to be so careful to watch for false teachers because what we're, not, what we're talking about that is at stake is not simply what we believe, but it is our very soul if we begin to believe something that's not true. At the end of the day, no matter what someone tells you, there, is, there are those things that are true and there are those things that are not true. Now, if you watch the news all the time, you really can't tell the difference, can you? It's hard to tell. You watch one, and they'll tell you that the other's lying. And what are they saying? No, you're lying. No, you're lying. I mean, it's like two five-year-olds that are fighting over Legos. You know, that's, and they're talking about what's happening in the world and helping to educate us for our part in it. The church over the last 2,000 years of its existence has had to course correct several times to shake off old and sometimes ineffective ways of following Christ and of practicing spirituality in order to take on those things or to remember those things that are most meaningful and most accurately help us to know, follow, and worship Christ. A somewhat contemporary author and Church historian by the name of Phyllis Tickle, who just passed away a few years ago, said, said it this way. Every 500 years, the church throws a rummage sale. Now, the point that Ms. Tickle was trying to make was not that we just, none of the things that we do don't really matter. There's no insignificance and demean the role and the practices of the church. That was not her point. Her point was simply this, that about every 500 years, the church strays enough from the truth that someone has to stand up and say, we need to get back to where we were. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a history lesson today. We're not going to go quite into as much history every week. We're going to do a little bit each week. Today, I want to lay out for you the a framework if you're not familiar with what happened or what has happened in our church's history. We're going to begin in the year 313 with Constantine. If you're a church historian, then what you have studied in the past is that Constantine ushered into the world the end of persecution of Christians and the elevation of Christianity as world religion. And in that time, Christianity grew tremendously. Now, as we look at the story of Constantine, Constantine was a Roman emperor that whenever he took power, all of Rome was split into three different divisions, and he had one division. Now, for several years leading up to this time, Constantine and many others tried to get as many people, many of the citizens of Rome, to come to their side that would help them, again, solidify control solidify leadership and become the overall emperor of all of Rome. And there was one group in particular that each group had to deal with. Can you imagine who that group was? It were the Christians. Now, the Christians we know had grown to such an extent that at one point, Nero set all of Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. 
It was growing like wildfire, pun not intended, to a point where they began to have enough numbers that they could sway political opinion. So what Constantine did was he outlawed what his predecessor had started, and that was the persecution of Christians, that Christianity itself was some kind of a terrible sector cult that should be outlawed. And if you were found practicing it or propagating it, then you would be killed. Now, this period happened for about 10 years. You may think, well, this happened for 300 years, from the time of Jesus' death on the cross until the time of Constantine. If you study your history, that period, while there's persecution in all different ways, and the first amount of persecution from Rome was to push out Jews out of Jerusalem, which is what we would come to know as the diaspora, the dispersion. The Jews would go out away from Jerusalem into all of Europe. But the actual terrible persecution where they would be thrown into the arena and they would be killed in horrific ways, that only lasted for about 10 years leading up to this point at which Constantine said, through the Edict of Milan, this will end. Christianity is a legal religion. Now, this is not a novel. This is not Harry Potter. This is our history. This happened in the world. With this, Constantine did something that we struggle with even to this day. And as Constantine held up this new partnership with Christians, he gave Christians political power and authority in a world in which Jesus never anticipated or wanted them to have. Because at this point, it is said that Constantine converts and becomes a Christian. And this all hinges on a story of the battle that began to give him control of all of Rome. In this particular battle, it was the bridge of the, or excuse me, the Milvanian Bridge, 312 AD, the year before the Edict of Milan. And he's losing the battle. He looks up and has a vision, and he sees a cross above the sun, and he hears a voice that says, By the symbol of my cross, you will have victory. And so he tells all of his soldiers, go paint a cross on your shield. And they do. And at the bridge, the Milvanian bridge, the tide turns and Constantine wins, solidifying his power. And therefore he, it is said, converts to Christianity, though there is no evidence other than political collusion with Christians. There is no evidence of any fruit in his life of being a follower of Jesus after that. But what he did was he ushered in a time of authority for Christians in the world order. And that would start a chain of events that would lead up to around 1054, a great schism in the church, would lead up to the Reformation in 500 or in 1500 AD. And I believe even leads up today to where we have this incredible evangelical fight about who should be president in the United States of America. All that I begin believe, I believe begins with Constantine. In 313 A.D., heralded by church historians that this was a birthplace and the beauty where Christianity took over the world. And yet what we know is that it actually corrupted our faith. Even today, many of our churches struggle with overcoming what happened. Constantine became so aligned with the Christians And because there was such animosity between Christians and Jews at the time, he would pass a law that would say, if you were a Christian 
and you were converted or you converted yourself to Judaism, that was against the law. And so what he said was, if you must be a Christian, he legalized it. He made it against the law to convert away from it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the gospel, I don't see anywhere that Jesus says that. I don't see anywhere that Jesus says, and Rome will enforce our faith. But that is what Constantine did. Now, let's jump ahead. Let me stop there for a minute. Matthew 22. When Jesus talks about how we should respond to the kingdom and to governments and to the powers that are in authority in the world, he says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, delineating the two. They're not the same. Now, if you're here today and you're an avid supporter of a candidate that you believe God has put them in that role, then I'm not here to argue with you. But whenever we begin to put on the head of a man or a woman the title of God's anointed, they had better be able to hold up under it. And their lives should demonstrate in every area the anointed of God. But what we tend to do is we begin to believe at this time with Constantine that somehow our government is responsible for our faith. John 18, Jesus said when the Pharisees came and would question him, and then eventually when he was questioned because of a stand that he took, we'll talk about in a minute, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the, to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. My kingdom is not of this world. So when we say, God bless America, I want you to be very careful. I also say, God bless America. I want his blessing as much as anyone else does. But to assume God blesses America because we are his covenant people is to misunderstand Scripture. We are not his covenant people. Even today, the Jews, while throughout history, God has said, you are my covenant people forever. His covenant people are now those who follow him, not of any nationality or ethnic background. We are all equal. The way that the apostles described that in the New Testament, as people struggled with the difference between Jews who had always been God's chosen people and who we are today, they said, There is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. We are all equal before Christ. That includes our denominations. That includes the way we sing our songs. That includes all our little theological background. That includes our skin color. That includes what country we're from. That includes who is our candidate of choice. All of that, we are equal before Christ. It does not matter. There is not one that sets us apart from anyone else. We are all equal. His kingdom is not of this world. What Constantine did was he changed the course of Christianity, and Christianity began to enjoy political power. This is leading up to what happened in 1500, and yet we still struggle with today in America. In 1054, the next 500 years, as the church began to digress, the Roman authority through the Pope began to increase. If you come from a Catholic background, it is not my goal to mock the Pope. The Pope of today is not the Pope of this time. 
But papal authority began to increase so much so that the church was the ultimate authority in the world. And then there were two heads of the church. It was the church in Rome and the church in Constantinople. Constantinople named after, guess who? Constantine, which was the center of the birth of Christianity in 300 A.D. So there was a leader there that would become known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then in the West, there was the Pope in Rome, and they could not decide who was the most powerful. And so we have what would become known as the Great Schism, in which the two leading uh, religious powers in each of those traditions decided that they would break and they would do their own thing. This is a coin that represents that break and if you think oh that's good this history is good this is all in the past how does that matter now it still is in effect today as the leader of the eastern orthodox church today with the western church happened in a thousand a.d and we see the beginning of the fracturing of the church The East believed that the church should function under the authority of the emperor and the decisions of the councils of which Constantine would begin. It was interesting. If you go back and study your history, you will find that many of the disagreements of faith at this time were decided by Constantine, a guy that we're really not sure he even was a real Christian. (laughs) And yet he would pull together the leading Christian minds of the day and say, hey, we all got a problem in the church and it's creating political problems for me. And so let's have a council together to figure this out so we can make this problem go away. One of the most well-known would be something you may have heard of called the Council of Nicaea. There would be several councils that would happen through the time of Constantine and then on. And the Eastern Orthodox Church believed we need to be subservient to the emperor and we need to be subservient to the decisions of the councils. And the church in the West says, no, we need to be completely under the Pope. The Pope is our ultimate authority of the church. And so they broke. It was this new political power. Again, this, this is not just material for a movie. This, this happened. Because of this new political power, the church began to rise in its authority and he even would rival kings and monarchs, emperors. They would decide that they had more power and authority than anyone. This is what led to the Crusades. Is anyone familiar with the Crusades? The Crusades were something that we look back on, and I, I, I find within my own heart and my own mind, I kind of ignore it and just know that it's there because it is one of the darkest stains in all of Christianity. It was a time in which the church began to try to take over the world militarily. And so there were different reasons that the Crusades happened, but soldiers would be emblazoned with the cross and they would go out under the authority of the church and they would eradicate anyone who disagreed with the church because the authority of the Pope was to be unquestioned. So there were two primary things that the Crusades would try to accomplish. One, they would go into the Holy Land and try to drive out Islam because Islam had taken over the Holy Lands. If you look around and see the fighting that's in the Middle East, this goes all the way back to the Crusades. That happened. And those of the Islamic faith hate Christians because of it. Because the church sent soldiers to kill them, men, women, and their children. Church also sent people out, and if you were labeled a heretic, or if you did something or disagreed with the 
teachings of the church, then you would not be corrected. You would be killed, cleansed through your own blood. (laughs) Those were the crusades. And if we look at a political underpinning of really what was happening here, even under these spiritual auspices of doing good things for the Christian faith, the goal was continued political influence and power within the church. This is our history. See, the world is very old. For us, it's very young. Our nation is still a baby compared to the kingdoms of the world. And so we tend to just think about the things that have happened in our lifetime while ignoring what we have been a part of throughout history. And while you could certainly say they were not real Christians and you would be right, that doesn't mean that the world doesn't still see us through their actions. So we can stand up and say those weren't real Christians. But that's not what the world sees. See, when we become aggressive, when we go out there and we're going to tell you where you're wrong, we take on the role of the Crusades. When Jesus said, they will know you by your love. You might be wondering, well, how in the world did the church get to this point? How do we get there? And I will tell you, they got there the same way we get to a point where we no longer truly follow Christ as the church. And I'm, it's not where I'm going, by the way, <laughs> that we are somehow completely lost out in left field. But that's how we get lost out in left field. It's along the way, we fail to remember the truth. The crusades were a terrible thing. They wanted to grow in power and influence. And it eventually they would have authority even over kings. Some of the abusive practices that would come on in this time was that they would tell the church what they were going to believe, what they were going to do, how they were going to act. And so what you saw in the video, one of the reasons for the Reformation was the inaction of indulgences. Indulgences simply said this, you got a problem with God, pay me. I handle your problem with God. <laughs> That's what it was. Purgatory was a huge, huge doctrine of the church at this time. And purgatory, though, never found in Scripture, is even something many people believe today because it was such a huge doctrine at this time. The church used the doctrine of purgatory to say your loved ones, because they did not demonstrate that they truly love Jesus, are bound for hell. But before they get there, they'll be in purgatory. And for the small fee... Of $100 or whatever it was, we can get them from purgatory into heaven. That's one of the ways that the church became what is today the richest organization in the world. When we look at Jesus' teaching, I don't think Jesus ever intended that. If you'll remember when Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them to go and to rob a bank carry big satchels of money wherever they went, and the gospel would go out because they were wealthy, wealthy people. Right? Did you, you read that, right? You've read that. But instead, what did he say? Don't take anything with you. Don't even take an extra set of clothes. Wherever you go, share the good news and rely on people to meet your needs. If we look at Jesus, Jesus never lived in elegance. Now, His call was not that we should all live in poverty. We have at times taken that view. If you go back and you look at how did Jesus even have a ministry? Yes, he's the son of God, but Jesus still ate, right? 
You're walking around talking all the time. Listen, if I go walk around and talk all the time, how am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? How am I going to pay any bills if I'm just sitting around talking all the time unless somebody pays me to do that, which is, well, I'm a pastor, so I really get to do that, right? But you ought to do. Jesus didn't have a job that paid his bills, but he had wealthy people that believed in the message that took care of their needs, he and his disciples. The apostles also would have a network of wealthy people that believed the message and funded the ministry. We hear of those people, we just don't celebrate them like we do those like Paul and the apostles and Jesus himself. But what Jesus said was not be poor. He said, rely on me solely. That's why scripture says it's harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Thank you. His point was not you need to have no money. The point was where is your hope? Where is your trust? What are you relying on? When the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, he says, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And what does Jesus tell him? Go sell everything you got and come and follow me. To which he put his head down and could not do that and walk away because his hope was in his stuff. It's hard not to put your hope in your stuff when you're wealthy. Not impossible. Spiritual gift of giving is often given to those along with the spiritual gift of making money. I love that gift. I don't have it. I wish I had it. But what the Spirit does in that person with the capability of making large amounts of money is giving them a heart with an easy release of that money into things that matter. That's the Holy Spirit in their life doing that. Yet at this time, with these indulgences, it sought to seek the wealth of the church to where it is today the wealthiest organization on the face of the planet. Can we eradicate poverty? No, we got to pay the church's bills. What would Jesus say? Aren't you feeling good? Aren't you glad you came? It's dreary outside. It's dreary inside. We're... But we are headed to hope. This is where we were. One of the abusive practices that began to happen was, if you disagree, as I've already mentioned, they would kill you. And one, one such example was a reformer that maybe you haven't heard of. Her name was Helen Sturkey. Helen Sturkey, her only sin was to follow God and to have a baby. And she was killed. Helen Sturkey, while she was in labor, about to have her child, had church nurses there to care for her. And these church nurses said, we must pray for the blessing of Mary on this child before the child comes. This is the tradition of the church. Mary is venerated in an equal standing with Jesus. And Helen said, oh, no, 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 I've read my Bible. Mary is not Jesus. I will not pray to Mary, which she probably could have gotten away with, except she took it one step further because she was, probably had the gift of prophecy, which says, I, I must let you know the truth. She took it one step further, and she said, you know what? Had I lived at the time that Jesus lived, God may have chosen me to be his mother. To which they interpreted, oh, you think you are equal with Jesus. To which, no, what I'm saying is, none of us, even Mary, is equal to Jesus. Jesus is the only one deserving of our worship and prayer. He said, no, you can't do this. Don't do this. And so the church rounded her up, took her husband, took their baby, 
There were some other people preaching a similar message in the town, brought them together, and executed them all, except for the baby. And if you read the story, what the church did, because the men were sentenced to hang, the women were sentenced to be drowned, and drowning at that time was not take you to some water and hold you under. They would bind your hands, bind your feet, put you in a sack, put some rocks in the sack with you, and throw you into the lake or the river or wherever you were until you drowned. And that was what they would consider purification. But before they killed her, they made her watch them kill her husband. Do you know who did this? Not those evil Romans, not those evil authorities. The church did it. This is our history. So when I say, are you familiar with the Reformation? It's not simply, that is such cool history. I love knowing that stuff. It's so much more than that. It is so much more than that. So we've been down in the depths. Let's move into some hope here. Let me give you some names of some people leading up to the Reformation. Martin Luther is given credit for leading the Reformation. Martin Luther was the one who ignited the wildfire that would change the church. However, many people leading up to Martin Luther began to make changes within the world as they saw these abuses. One of the worst practices that the church began to enact was to say that the Holy Scriptures should not ever be translated into a common tongue. In other words, don't let anybody but educated priests know how to read Scripture, which if you do that, guess what happens? You disagree with me? This is what the Bible says. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You won't know. Because you can't read it. And so they would refuse to let anyone know Scripture in their own tongue. Enter a man by the name of John Wycliffe. He lived from 1330 to 1384. He was a philosophy chair at Oxford. The more he studied Scripture, he was, he was educated in Greek and Hebrew. And the more he studied, the more he began to see the corruption in the church. So much so that John Wycliffe was the first person to take those scriptures, and translate them into a common tongue. Now, he wasn't killed for this. Others would be later. But after he died, his bones were dug up by the church. They were burned, and then his ashes were scattered in a river in the hopes, the symbolism, which is always why you kill people who disagree with you, that you would erase their message. It didn't work with John the Baptist. It didn't work with Jesus. It never works. (laughs) But we keep trying it. Let's kill the people that disagree with us, and then we won't have any more problems. He wrote several books. We'll talk about this another day. But what he said in this moment was to break the back of the church. It helps Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue which they know best. Because once people began to get God's word in their hand and they could read it for themselves, there was no need for the priests. Excuse me? Wycliffe's was in, I believe his was in English. It was common English, yes. Interestingly enough, this was before the Gutenberg Press. And every Bible, every Wycliffe Bible that was handed out at that time was handwritten. I think, I think the numbers were somewhere around 100 were copy, hand-copied and then passed out. Do we, I see all fan. Do we need to turn the air on in here? We, can we bump the air down a little bit? I'm getting hot up here. It may just be me. 
I'm full of hot air, so I'm probably filling the room. <laughs> probably filling the room. Wycliffe, again, was not killed for what he did, but this is what he said. I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. 1494 to 1536, another guy by the name of William Tyndale translated it into English. It became known as the Tyndale Bible, and it would be one of the primary ways that the King James Version would be translated um, in the next few years. The King James Version, by the way, was not a translation. The King James Version, if you will read the preface to the original document will tell you we didn't translate from the original languages. We just took all the best that we had and we combined it into one readable English version. And one of the ones they relied on heavily was Tyndale. Tyndale was accused of heresy and because he wanted to put the Bible into the tongue of the common man, he was tied to a stake, strangled until he died, and then his body was burned by the church. But what he did was give the gospel into the hands of everyone who could read. A priest by the name of Menno Simons, who would eventually become the founder of the Mennonite church, actually began as a Catholic priest. And it's interesting, one of the things that, that uh, Menno said was that he did not want to read Scripture. He said, I had not touched them, talking about the Scriptures, during my life, for I feared if I did read them that they would mislead me. That was his spill as a, as a Catholic priest. I'm not going to read them because it may mess up my theology. To which we would say today, absolutely, praise God, amen. You know? And so he became a reformer and eventually become the head of the Mennonite church that we have today. He said, I can neither teach nor live by the faith of others. I must live by my own faith as the Spirit of the Lord has taught me through His Word. That reminds me of Matthew 4, 4 that says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The fact that the church would withhold this from people meant that the church was in need of reforming. As he began reading, he began disagreeing with another new doctrine that had happened with the church. It was called transubstantiation. Again, if you come from the Catholic Church, some still believe this. It's not my goal to, to argue. But transubstantiation says that whenever a priest who is truly ordained by God in the position of authority as a priest were to pray over the sacraments, which would be bread and wine for communion, those that bread and wine would actually turn into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, a common person could not have communion unless a priest with authority prayed over it. And in that moment, it actually transformed into the blood and body of Jesus. Now, people have had different ideas. Some have seen that in different ways. The way that we see that here is this was this is, is something figurative that we partake of to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, not that it actually becomes Jesus himself. But he disagreed with that. He became what was known as an Anabaptist because he disagreed with another practice of the church, which was baby uh, baptism, infant baptism. In infant baptism, your place in heaven was held if your parents baptized you as, as, a, as a child, an infant into the church, which was a good way for church growth, by the way. Just get all the babies when they come in. You're, our, you're part of our church. You can go nowhere else. 
And a group called the Anabaptists said, that's not right. A person cannot accept Christ as a baby. They must make a decision within themselves to accept that through faith. The church said, okay, you got a problem with the way we baptize. We'll baptize you again. They called it their second baptism. Then the second baptism, they put them, bound their hands, put a sack over their body, threw rocks in and threw them in and drowned them, and that was their second baptism. You don't agree with the way we do baptism? Here you go. Minnow Simons was there when 300 Anabaptists were drowned because they did not believe in this. You may be thinking, as I did the first time I heard this, well, that's stupid. It's just baptism. Why die over baptism? I mean, there's lots of things to die over, but is this one of them? And the reason that we have that response is because you and I do not live in a time where we must sacrifice our lives to stay true to our faith. But they did. For them, it wasn't about going through the motions. It wasn't about going to church. It wasn't about feeling spiritual. For them, this was life or death. This was my soul is going to be with Christ or not. I will either be in heaven or I will be in hell. There is too much at stake for me not to stay true to God's word and the truth of what God has told me to do to follow him. And so they said, I cannot go against what Jesus has told me. He is the author and perfecter of my faith. I must follow him. And even today, while not in this country and not in many countries, you may go on vacation around the world. Still today, people have to make this choice. People are being killed if they want to follow Jesus. This is the same thing. We jump ahead to Martin Luther in 1483. This is when things begin to change rapidly which is why we don't hear so much about these practices anymore. This is not the Catholic Church of today. I don't, it is wrong to say the Catholic Church of today, we should down with the Pope. It's wrong to say it is not the same church as then. Martin Luther decided that he had to address these. He rejected indulgences. He rejected prayers to the saints, which meant we pray to someone other than Jesus. He rejected purgatory, the idea that you could pay for somebody's soul to get into heaven. He rejected the authority of the Pope being over all things and being equal with Jesus and the scriptures. He rejected all of that and he wrote it in a document, 95 statements called the 95 Theses, and he nailed it to the Wittenberg church door. And what he began just trying to get into a debate with the priests of that church spread like wildfire. People saw it and read it. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. One of the foundational things that Martin Luther preserved for us was that our salvation is so precious. It's so precious that we can only come to it through grace and faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in 1517, he nailed his 95 thesis on the door proclaiming salvation by grace through faith alone, and that the Bible is our central authority, not the Pope, not the priests, and not the church. Martin Luther said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Now, why do I give you all of this fun, feel-good 
information. It's not for sensationalism. It's not for shock. It's not to say, oh, look, we are such terrible people. That is not why I I share this with you. I share this with you because those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Left to its own, the faith and practice of the church will become corrupt. It will. When we put it in our terms of what we want it to be, we corrupt it. That's why we have authority to go to, and it is not us. We have to be so careful about how we approach our faith. We can't simply say, my faith is a part of my life. No, either our our faith is our life, or we have no life. That's it. That's what the Reformers would say, and that's what we still must say if we are to know Christ. And yet we live in a world that you can still have a piece of Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you can't. You can't have a piece of me. You either have all of me or you have none of me. If you're in the middle, I will spit you out from my mouth. Not because Jesus loves someone who rejects him more than someone who's on the fence, but because Jesus knows you cannot be on the fence. You think you're in, but you're not. That's why it's worse. It's either faith in me alone or it's faith in something else. You can't have both. We have two examples of this kind of reformation happening in the church even before Jesus' uh, crucifixion, resurrection. Matthew 14, 1, uh, excuse me, starting with verse 3, talking about John the Baptist. The church in Jerusalem had become corrupted. Same thing, power, wealth, control, and began to speak out against them. And he would go out. He lived out in the desert eating locusts and honey. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, which was his second wife, who was previously married to his brother. Now, Scripture says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's a sin. I want my brother's wife. In fact, what Herod had done was he wanted power, he wanted control, and Herodias was an influential uh, Jewish monarch that was married to his brother, but he wanted control, so he went to her and convinced her to divorce him and marry him so that he could solidify his political control and power in Jerusalem. He seized him, put him in prison for the sake of his second wife, Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body, buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Why was John the Baptist killed? Because he threatened the political power of King Herod. He was killed. This is our history. Why was Jesus killed? Not because he said he was the king of the Jews. Luke 19, 45, he entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus was killed because he threatened the power of the priests. Do you see a pattern? Those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. This is why we must be aware of what's been happening in the world around us. A Latin phrase has been coined that you're going to hear for the next few weeks. I'm about to wrap up. I know this is intense. I don't mean for it to be. I tried to make, I thought, I need to add some funny stuff into this today just to lighten the mood. But I was like, well, how do you do that? So there was, you know, this priest and this reformer and this Anabaptist all walked into a bar together. You know, it's, kind of, it's just hard to do, you know. It's hard to do. The Latin phrase became known, semper reformanda, subtitle for our series today, literally means always reforming. The idea is this. The Reformation was not a one-time thing. The church must stay true to its teachings. We must always be reforming. We must always be protesting. We must always be standing up for what is truth and what is right. We must always be calling out what is evil, oppressive, and is distorting the gospel. Always. And so that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks is talk about how do we do that? Do we get our pitchforks out and our signs and our torches? That's what's happening right now in Shelbyville and Murfreesboro as White Lives Matter are burning crosses saying that their love and devotion to God has led them to cleanse us from those evil black people and Jewish and anybody else that's not white. It's happening right now, this weekend. You think, we read about this kind of stuff in the history books. No, we watch it happening right now on live TV. This is still happening. They are saying this in devotion to God. This is why they are doing it. I want to read you this scripture, and we're going to close. We could spend another couple hours on this. I'm not going to. I want you just to listen to these three parts. You've heard each of these three parts. You should be familiar with them if you've been in church in any amount of time at all. You may not know that they follow all with the same thought. These are all under the same thought, the same subject, the same goal, pushing in the same direction. I want you to listen to this. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 27 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Think about that. Take that in. This is, how, this, is, this is how intense the gospel is. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Next thought. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. This passage is on the mind of the reformers. Why do they let themselves be killed over not praying to Mary when your child's being born? Why just not give in and baptize your child and say, I didn't mean it? And then let him get baptized later in the way you want him to. 
It was because this was on their minds. This passage is on their minds. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Next thought, same passage, same conversation. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Semper Reformenda. Church must be always reforming, recognizing the power of the gospel to save our souls, to walk with Christ, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, to have purpose when other people say you have no purpose, and to have hope when other people say your hope is only in yourself or in your governing authorities. Simple Reformanda tells us that we have to go to Scripture, and we have to hear God's words, and we have to take them to heart. He doesn't want a piece of our heart. He wants the whole thing. And when we do that, we experience the fruit of the Spirit. And by receiving the fruit of the Spirit, we bear fruit through the Spirit. So what do you do with this information I've given you today? Walk out of here and go, great job, Mark. Great summation of history. No. This is, so, this is such a small part. There's so much more out there. What you take from this is you look at these reformers and you recognize that this woman in the midst of labor made a stand for what she knew was true and today we're still talking about her. In that moment, I'm sure she felt insignificant. She wasn't going to help spark a change in the way the church did that. So you today would not have to pray to Mary when you give birth or face death. She took the stand for us. In the ways that you live your life, you have the opportunity to live your faith out authentically, and it matters. If no one does a documentary on your life in a hundred years, your life still matters right now, and the way we live matters because other people are watching us, and if we let those who would corrupt the gospel for their own gain be the loudest voice in the room, then there is a whole generation of people that will miss the opportunity to receive it for what it is. See, they didn't go out saying, we just need to build the church, we need to grow the church, we need to have bigger churches. They went out and said, we need to stay true to Jesus Christ. We need to follow him faithfully and truthfully. And they changed the world. You, right where you are, when you go to school, the way that you go there and you do what you do matters. What other people watch you, how you act, how you text how you use social media, how you study, how you prepare, how you brag or don't brag about how well you did matters. See, one of the reasons that the church was just so terrible for the gospel, imagine going to school and your professor comes in and says, okay, I have the history book, but you know what? I didn't want to read it. I just wanted to make up a test on my own and you will be graded on whatever I've come up with. That's what happens when we don't go to Scripture. You try to guess what they want you to say, it may or may not be true. Today, we must be vigilant to live out our faith as the world around us is changing. 
As the world changes, the church has to change. But our message has to stay true to the gospel. You know, we have djembes up here and cajones up here and headphones up here, and we do things maybe in different ways than the church did, but is our message the same? Is our devotion the same? Are we living out our faith the same? Are we experiencing Christ? We've got to always be reforming. Let me encourage you. We have to always stay rooted in God's truth. We're going to do a one week. There's so much in the Reformation about Scripture that I want to share more with you about this. But I want you, when you go home and you think, Gosh, I really ought to read my Bible. I haven't read it in a while. I really should. I mean, I'd feel better. I really should. I want you to think about these folks that died so they could read it. They gave their lives so they could have God's truth in their hands. I told you a few months ago, I... I reached a point of struggling in my own life and my own faith and struggling with just feeling like things were not going well, discouraged, dealing with depression and things. And I I realized I had forsaken my time with God. So I began what I had, had always been a practice of mine before, but I had dropped by the wayside, spending time with Him every day and spending Copious amounts of time, as much as I could in His Word. And i, I got to tell you, it, the beauty of walking with Christ in His Word, it is beyond words. When you get out of the habit of reading Scripture, you forget that. I'm going to encourage you. Don't come here and say, oh, those are so interesting. That's so interesting. But instead, leave thinking, oh, I have the opportunity to know truth. I need to devote my life to that. And as you do that, you'll experience God's presence. Helen Sturkey that I mentioned, because she was the one who had caused the offense, they made her hold her baby and walk up to her husband and let her say goodbye to him one more time before he was hung. She said to him, her last words, I will not say goodnight to you because today we will be with our Savior in heaven forever. When you experience Christ in that way, it changes you. It changes the way you live your life. It changes the peace that you have. It changes the way you love other people. It changes the expectations you have from God. It changes the expectations you have for yourself for God. It changes you, even to the point where you will face death because you have been given a pearl of great price or the parable of the treasure in the field that you sold everything you had. You gave everything away just so you could have that treasure. That is what Jesus is. I encourage you to experience that. My great fear for our church today, I'm going to quit, I'm going to close. My great fear for the church today is not that there is a human authority out there trying to corrupt our faith, although there will, that will always be the case. They will always try to use our faith to manipulate us. That's just the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. Jesus said it. He called them the wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false prophets. He said, you've got to be vigilant against them all the time. 
We still have to be vigilant against that. But that is not my concern. My concern is that we will become so ambivalent to the goodness of Christ that we will live our lives with the peace of Jesus but miss all of him. We've just become so comfortable in the ways that we live our lives. We've become so addicted to entertainment that we just check out of reality and we check in to whatever the most entertaining thing on TV or on our phones is. And we miss what God is doing in the world right now. That is my great fear for the church. As pastors, we feel the need to entertain. We feel the need to have better sermons. We feel the need to have better music because you can go somewhere with better music and better preaching and more entertaining and sermons that aren't as depressing as they are here, right? (laughs) My prayer for the church is that we will become so devoted to his word and his truth and experiencing in our lives that we cannot but make him the center of everything. Just pray with me. Father, God, I thank you for those men and women who took a stand, those men and women who knew the truth, and they knew that all people needed to know the truth. They were willing to give their lives rather than let the gospel continue to be corrupted and be hidden from so many people who were going to miss the beauty of your life and your love. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts to understand these kinds of atrocities in the world and not take them in and bring darkness into our own hearts. But yet we would be aware that if we are not vigilant of our need to share the light of Christ in the world, that darkness will take over. Father, I want us to be a part of that light. We know that in the end you will win. We know in the end you are going to return and you are going to conquer all this and none of this is going to be a problem. But until that day, Father, I pray that we would authentically demonstrate the gospel in our lives and our love for each other. Father, I pray that you would make your word open up to us and become alive to us so that it's not just words on a page that we are required to take in, but instead they become words of life that completely transform us and transform the world around us. Father, I pray that we would be aware of the idols that we put in authority over your word and over your Savior. And I pray that we would only look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, I thank you that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what you call us to, no matter what persecution we might go through in following you, we are promised an eternity of joy with you in heaven. I I thank you for that promise. And if you lead us, to the place where we must lose everything to follow you, you will not only restore it as you did with Job, but we will have so much more than we could ever have in this world with you in heaven. Until that day, Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that it indwells within us. We have a deposit now to experience your fullness. We can be complete and perfected through that. Even though we still struggle with sin, you have loved us so completely that you have forgiven us for that sin. Lord, help us to love your word and help us to live it out every day. Not that we can boast about how good of a Christian we are, but because we can experience your power through our own weakness. Father, as we close in worship today, I pray that we would not simply sing and walk out of here and just go about our business, but it would be on our heart and on our lips that you are the center of our lives. So let this song as we sing, let it... Let it be a sweet song to your ears. 
and let it take us out of this place so that we worship every day in the week ahead. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.